Welcome to Murder and Mayhem, the podcast where we explore the dark and mysterious side of writing. It's a world filled with more evil and crime than you can shake a sharpened stick at, where people save the world from certain destruction, where spies, terrorists and thugs abound, and where the killer could be someone in your very own home. It's also a world often filled with flawed heroes and likeable villains. But above all, it's a place where we explore the authors who tell these very stories, what makes them tick, and how their words manage to take us to some of the darkest corners of our imaginations. Hello everyone, my name's Valerie Koo and I'm host of the Murder and Mayhem pop-up podcast. This episode is brought to you by the popular online course, Anatomy of a Crime, How to Write About Murder. Over eight spine-chilling modules, you'll delve into each step of the murder process, including the psychological, forensic and legal aspects of homicide from premeditation right through to prison life. Brought to you by one of the world's leading centres, for writing courses, the Australian Writers' Centre. Using both real and fictional cases, you'll discover the many faces of killers, the police who pursue them, and the victims who get caught in the killer's trap, all designed to enhance your crime and thriller writing and help you bring writing about death to life. It's a self-study course with a full audio program, including accompanying handouts and videos and resources where you can view real forensic and police reports reports and a dissection of real murder scenes. Find out more at murdercourse.com. That's murdercourse.com. It's Valerie Koo here and welcome to today's installment of Murder and Mayhem. Hope you've been enjoying the podcast series so far and getting some insight into the minds of some of the world's best crime and thriller authors. What you can also do is download your free ebook and you can find that at murdercourse.com. Now that ebook is called A Month of Murder and Mayhem. Spend 31 days with the world's best crime and thriller authors. And what you can do is actually spend 31 days with them and do one author per day if you want to do it in an intensive period. Have a listen to the podcast, but also read some of the key takeaways from what they have to say and see how you can apply that to your own writing. Or you might like to take a slightly more laid back approach where you do one a week or once every few days. It's totally up to you, but you can certainly download your free ebook at murdercourse.com. Now today we are talking to Mark Abernethy. Mark Abernethy is an Australian crime and thriller writer. He's also a journalist and a ghost writer, uh, but he is famous for his thriller novels, Second Strike, Double Back and Counter Attack. So I love the fact that he can combine his work as a journalist and ghostwriter. And when he does ghostwriting, he does it for some pretty interesting and diverse types of people with crime and thriller writing, where he can get, get into that zone and write this action, fast paced kind of stuff. All of these adventures that his readers can go on with him. Now, these interviews first appeared in our other podcast, which is called So You Want to Be a Writer. I co-host that podcast with the lovely Alison Tate, who is a fellow author and journalist and writes across many genres. You'll find that podcast on iTunes and it's where we interview people from all different parts of the industry in writing and publishing and blogging so we can cover all of the elements you need in order to get published. But we also interview authors from all different walks of life and all different genres. But here what we've done in Murder in Mayhem is just focused on curating the crime and thriller authors so you can get their tips and techniques and insights all in one spot. So I hope you enjoy listening to my chat with Mark Abernathy. Mark, thanks for joining us today. No sweat. So tell us, what inspired you to come up with an Australian super spy? Well, I suppose uh, there were two stages to it. The first stage was probably that my uh, entire original first burst of, of reading when I was a child was Ian Fleming mm-hmm. and then Alistair MacLean. So, uh, and for me, that started when I was uh, about nine years old and I read Dr. No for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so 
And ever since then, I've been interested in thrillers in general uh, and espionage thriller in particular. Uh, it was just a, a basic interest of mine. And uh, then, uh, then as an adult uh, and a journalist and a ghostwriter, I used to ghostwrite business books for people. Mm-hmm. And I was just heard to say one day, um, you know, why, why are all our spy heroes in, in the thriller genre, why are they all British and American? And I just sort of said out loud this fateful thing. I said, somebody should write a story uh, about uh, an Australian super spy um, whose theatre of action is sort of more Southeast Asia mm. and the South Pacific. And, uh, you know, if it was done properly, that could be very entertaining. So the next thing I knew... I was starting off on writing this book called Golden Serpent, mm. just straight out of my brain, just you know, just as an as as a story, and uh, you know, uh, it got picked up. So th- that's how it got inspired, really. To uh, I was interested in the genre, mm. and I I couldn't understand why an, an Aussie spy hadn't been made into a fiction character. So, do you would you secretly want to be James Bond or Alan McQueen? I don't think so. <laughs> no. I'm, uh, you know, my level of danger, sort of uh, walking walking from my writer's desk to the kettle to pour myself a cup of tea, that's about, um, that's about as dangerous as I want to get it. Um, you know, uh, th- this, is a, this is a fictionalized person uh, based on uh, people I've met, people I've been introduced to. Uh, research I've done, and uh, it suits me that that somebody else is out there doing this stuff uh, rather than me. Mm-mm. So now you also work as a journalist and have done for quite a while. When yeah. did you decide that you wanted to write as a journalist? And then was it difficult to to transition to to write an entire book? Yeah, well, there were th- there's probably two transitions you're talking about there. Mm. The first. I was at university uh, trying to be a lawyer, and I'd already dropped out once, and then I was, I'd come back for a second time to do this law degree mm-hmm. uh, because my, you know, uh, my father's a lawyer and my sister's a lawyer and all of this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and having come back for a second time, and I had to be honest with myself, I thought, I, I really, I'm just not interested in this. You know, it just doesn't interest me. What I, I realised what I really liked was all the art subjects I was doing. Mm-hmm. And in particular, the, the writing side of it, the essays, that's, that's what I was good at, was actually writing. And so my first transition was to, uh, was to apply for a journalism course. This is back in New Zealand in the old days. And the polytechnics did, did the journalism courses. They were intensive half-year ones. And then you went off to work for a newspaper. It was, they were called induction courses. So I went and did that, and I was sort of probably a bit of a natural I really liked journalism. I was basically good at it. Um, the, the the next stage about trying to go from being a journalist, a reporter, a writer, mm. uh, serving magazines and newspapers and turning around and, uh, and writing fiction for a publisher was a, a massive cultural change. Yes. Uh, and about the, you know, really, I didn't go to any writer's courses i didn't have any mentors or teachers i just mm. i just wrote these four sample chapters that a publisher liked you know mm. louise, louise Thurtell at alan and unwin arena she just liked these chapters and wrote me a contract and said finish this book <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah and so it was a huge learning curve i wrote that first book golden serpent in around eight weeks uh, what? <laughs> yeah, that's what people say, and uh, I'm not meant to go around repeating that or give people the wrong idea. But I'm, I'm what's known as a fast writer. I, you know, once I get set on something, I can do two chapters a day and just, you know, really go for it. Wow. Uh, so yeah, I'm. But that's that's not that's not by way of boasting. That's just how I write. Mm-hmm. I can't. The idea of writing a book for two years and lovingly crafting a manuscript, uh, you know, I just couldn't do it that way. So 
Um, so yeah, it was uh, transitioning from journalism and and ghostwriting business books for people to suddenly writing fiction um, was uh, was a huge change, but um, one I'm really glad I made myself do. It was. Um, yeah. It's it's been very rewarding in in many different ways. So if Golden Serpent took 8 weeks, have your other books since also taken a similar length of time? Uh well, that they that they could have if I'd wanted them to. Right. Uh, no, I'm I'm now that's kind of pushed out. It's more like about 12 weeks. Right. Now I sort of um on on the first novel I was so Keen. I was, so, well, I, was, I, was, I was keen, I was freaked out. The, the thing that I'd always wanted to do to write commercial thriller books, novels, was, mm. was suddenly thrown on my lap. And mm. I, um, it so happened that they wanted to, to have the book in time for a certain release. So I had to have it done before that Christmas. I think it was uh, 2007. Mm. Can't remember. 2006, 2007, and um, and I had a, a, a ghost writing assignment to finish before that, so I couldn't even think about. It. I had to had to race through finishing the the business book, mm. and then I had one day off where I went and I I think I I lay on the beach down at Coogee <laughs> for a day, just thinking how how am I going to get through this? <laughs> and the next day I went and sat down and. Um, Completed Golden Serpent in in in, in very fast time. So, so um, pre- presumably that's in first draft. Uh, you you know it took eight weeks to get to first draft. Is there a great deal of editing and revision after that? Oh yeah, yeah there is, and I, I kind of like that. Mm. Um, probably because of my journalism background and and the fact mm. I've been an editor and mm. uh, and what have you. So I've seen it from both sides. I'm quite relaxed with the idea of of manuscript coming back to me with notes and with edits mm. and with um, queries about, you know, do we really need this chapter? Yeah. For instance, and, uh, <laughs> you know, on, on that first on that first manuscript that came back, we chopped out an entire chapter. Mm. And, a, a, you know, a manuscript that I'd sent off with 150,000 words got whittled down to 134. Right. So it lost it. It had a haircut of sixteen thousand words somewhere mm. along the. But but I was fine with that because that process actually makes it a better, a better read, which is what it's all about. And I sort of, I always sort of, uh, you know, smile wryly when when other authors tell me about their great ego battles <laughs> with publishers about how they're not going to change this and they're not going mm. to change that. And uh, I just see it as a chance to make it better for the reader, really. Mm. So obviously with um, these books, you go to exotic locations and you you write about um, other places that you're not necessarily living in or not necessarily familiar with. So how do you work all of that in and get it to be credible? Do you do a lot of research or how how does that work for you? I do a lot of research. Mm -hmm. Uh, Each each book, and I'm, I'm looking at the stack of of files at the moment, actually. They're just manila fi- uh, file folders and they're just filled with uh, notes, um, little interviews I've done with people. Uh, I ring up government departments a lot. Right. And just say, th- just ask them things. I just say, well, you know, if I was going to do this, what would I need? Mm. Uh, if I was going to get into this building. And so all of these tiny details that, that people like about my books. Um, just come from me actually finding out, you know, what mm. it takes what it takes to get into the the RG Casey building in in Canberra, or mm. you know what you need to get onto a, an Australian Army base in Darwin, or you know just just you know small bits and pieces and details. I, I collect a lot of research. Mm. I also talk to a lot of people. I think that having a journalism background mm. uh, has really served me well. It's made me, you know. If you do, if you're a journalist for more than ten years, you become a professional listener. You know, mm. you you really learn just to sit back and let somebody else tell you the story. And you know, I've found over the years that people uh, from surprising surprising uh, avenues 
people have uh, revealed that they've had something to do with this or something to do with that, and mm. I, I just sit and listen and try to work out how how some of the how the sort of demimond to this subworld, especially around Southeast Asia, how it actually works, mm. and uh, and what some of the issues are to deal with it when you you know when you're an Anglo-Saxon from from Australia. Mm. How do you fit into that world? And how do you get what you want without being killed? The research process is almost like a licence to be able to find out any information that you want, isn't it? Well, yeah. Um, it's great. And it is great. And, um, you know, you find that a lot of people just shut you down immediately. I, right. I wrote, you know, my, well, my second, my second novel was called Second Strike and it was a fictionalised account of what may have been behind the Bali bombings. Mm. Um, and I was trying desperately to get the final report that the Australian Federal Police had worked on with the Indonesian National Police, um, only to be told that I couldn't see it. Right. So, you know, things like that. Uh, you you just have to roll with that and... Um, uh, you just have to, you just have to decide, uh, decide. Well, just because somebody's not going to uh, cooperate with me on that level, doesn't mean I'm not going to write this book. You just mm. have to find another way to do it. And mm. um, so, you know, research can't be everything. It's not like you're writing a, mm. a, it's not like you're writing a white paper for a government department or something. Mm. It doesn't. <laughs> you, you you have to have a break point where you say, okay, well, that, that avenue won't allow me. Uh, the act, you know, all of the facts. So I will charge on anyway and uh, alter my plot slightly. And on the flip side of that, have you found sometimes people to be surprisingly candid about things? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I, um, you know, for instance, for instance, special forces soldiers, mm. uh, Aussie special forces guys, you know, the SAS or the the four R commandos. Mm. Uh, they're very, very cagey, and they're very careful about who they talk to. Um, but if the, if you can get them talking, uh, they're very interesting. And a lot of um, a lot of the sort of little humorous episodes, little humorous asides that happen amidst the action in my books um, are taken are taken from some of these soldiers' stories. You know, mm. the, the sort of thing that happens in the field when everyone's totally stressed and, you know, tired and and in a lot of danger and are, are really a bit over it, uh, the kind of little pranks they play on each other mm. um, are, the, are the really interesting bits to me. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I have been surprised how frank some people have been with me, sure. And you say you've been, you know, since the age of nine reading yeah. these sorts of books and now you're writing them. What's the appeal? What's the thing that you that you love about it? That's a really good question and, uh, you know, it's, it's not the first time it's been asked and it's pretty hard to put it, put it uh, into words. What, what I do know is that uh, up until that age, I had a I had a high, according to my mother, that is, I had a high reading age, but I didn't like to read. Mm. So all of the books back then, for me, was you know people were reading things like The Hobbit, mm. or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, mm, mm. or Swallows and Amazons, and <laughs> you know all of this sort of thing. Uh, I didn't really become a reader until. Uh, as I say, in, in the same year, I discovered Ian Fleming and Jules mm. Verne. So, mm. uh, you know, if you put Ian Fleming and Jules Verne together and you ask, well, what do you see in that kind of material? Uh, excitement, mm. adventure, um, uh, character, I suppose, character being put to the test. Mm. Can somebody can somebody remain... Uh, remain an intelligent problem solver under enormous stress and the greatest stress that any of us will ever face is the, the threat of being killed imminently. Mm. You know? mm. uh, the threat of a violent death is guaranteed to raise your heartbeat. Um, <laughs> how, how do people react under that? What do they do? Um, do they go to water or do they stand up or do they become more cunning or, you know? Mm. And I guess that's what... 
has always appealed to me from the very first, you know. Uh, as I said, when I read Dr. No, mm. and uh, I just remember thinking, wow, you know, there is, uh, there is a writer out there who knows exactly what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you read those sorts of life-threatening situations or adrenaline-filled situations, your heart does go faster and you do get into it. But writing is a much slower process. What's it feel like? writing those sorts of scenes and passages? Uh, well, it should fill you full of adrenaline. As well? Yeah, you should get a bit short of breath. You should be trying to write faster. Mm. Your fingertips should be getting sore. Um, you know, it, uh, it should be, if you've got the right pace. Mm. I think, uh, you know, when I, when I look at... When I look at, um, uh, say, thriller or suspense, suspense writing, which, which isn't quite getting me in, it's usually because the pacing's wrong. Mm. Or, um, yeah, it's, it's usually the pacing. So I just, you know, if I'm writing, if I'm writing a scene that's, that's coming to some critical point and there's bullets flying everywhere or, you know... Mm. You know, my hero's about to die, or his mm. friend's about to get shot, or something. Mm. I just, um, I just go right into that scene and just, I write as if I'm there. And so you kind of know in yourself whether you've, you get, you're on the right track because you feel it internally. Yeah, I think so. That's that's how it works for me. Um, and it's the same. You know, it's the same for some of the slower, slower scenes where my hero is dealing with his wife or, mm-hmm. um, you know, or he's worried about his kids or something, you know. If, if I'm not feeling that as well while, while I'm writing it, mm. then I'm probably not doing a very good job and I'll, I'll sort of, I'll go away and have lunch and come back to it or I'll mm. scrap it and start again or I'll walk around in circles for 20 minutes and just really think what I'm trying to say mm. and whether it's worth saying, actually. Uh, Tell us a bit more about Counterattack, your latest book. Well, Counterattack sees uh, Counterattack sees uh, Alan McQueen, who is our mm. he works for Aussie SIS, uh, which is our offshore spy service, and he's sort of been semi-retired. Uh, but as happens in in all of the spy agencies, they they let people semi-retire, but then they sort of lure them back with contractor work or, uh, you know, you never really retire from these places. And so we see Alan McQueen turn, turning 40. Uh, he, he's lured, he's, he's asked to run what he thinks is a simple job in Singapore, um, really turning that they found a spy in Brisbane. They lure him to Singapore to try to turn him, but then there's an assassination, a very sudden and brutal one. So he comes... So he comes back to Australia and he's wondering how he ever got lured back into this world. He thinks he's lost it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his next assignment is basically to go and find out whether somebody at, in, in the Saigon consulate in Aussie is what he's up to. He's mm-hmm. wandering around. So he goes up into Vietnam and discovers a whole lot of really unpalatable connections to what was initially just meant to be a reporting on somebody. Mm. Uh, and it explodes. Uh, it spirals out of control, basically. Uh, Alan McQueen, he, he is accused of things by his own side. He, uh, he is chased around by uh, bad guys uh, who are retired rogue Mossad people. Uh, and uh, essentially he has to resolve... Uh, he has to resolve what is going on, which is essentially a bunch of uh, a bunch of um, right wing generals from the Chinese army mm. at- attempting to take control of the North Korean missile tests mm. for nefarious purposes. So it's uh, <laughs> as with most of my Alan McQueen books, mm. with all of them, it he usually starts with something fairly routine. Mm. Um, but he's, he's, he's nosy and he's curious mm. and his character is he doesn't let anything go. So he just keeps 
poking away until suddenly he realises he's dealing with a huge conspiracy and usually there are people on his own side who have got different agendas. Uh, they try to usually try to recall him um, and so he has to fight against them as well as the genuine bad guys. So do you travel much to Southeast Asia to check out your settings? Um, yeah, not, 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 not for a while, not, not for... Not for not for a few years, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the best compliments I've ever had, really, because I've I've got my own website, and so I get my my so called fan mail comes direct mm. uh, from that website, and you know, virtually un- un- unanimously. The people say you really captured Asia, you know, mm. you really, mm. which is always. Uh, Nice to hear. I mean, I, I kind of enjoy, I kind of enjoy building a, a sort of uh, ongoing sense of humour mm. uh, about the the cultural misunderstandings that happen mm. when, when Anglo-Saxons uh, go into Southeast Asia, and it's not not on a nasty level, Mm-mm. just the, the, the slightly different ways that language goes, the right. slightly different. Um, Customs for all sorts of things. You know, for for instance, the simplest one of how um, when when faced with disappointing somebody, your average Indonesian will just nod and say yes. Mm. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> yes. you know, it's not it's not because they're being sneaky. It's no, just, it's just a, a cultural thing. And I had a lot of fun with doing that in counter attack, just sort of um, you know talking about how uh, an Anglo Aussie gets along in in Saigon, where. Mm. You know, there's, it's, it's a very aggressive trading culture, and you know, you basically even you know, when when buying the simplest thing at the markets, you have to bargain, and uh, you know, these sorts of things. So, um, you know, I like, I, I kind of enjoy uh, putting putting those two cultures together, mm. and and having a a, a, a a sort of cultural levity that goes along with the. Um, with the, the, the action and the violence. Mm-mm. And you have to get that right or people can spot that a mile away. <laughs> well, yeah. Mm. Um, you know, for my for the latest one with counterattack, I, I actually got on the phone to, uh, to a couple of people, uh, one of which was, uh, was uh, one, of the, um, one of the Vietnamese uh, cultural people at SBS, for instance. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just ring up and say... Um, <laughs> just you know, just remind me because you know it's been a while since I was in Vietnam. So just get reminders on the language and uh, the customs, and you know, and people are actually always uh, sort of pleasantly surprised to be asked these things, and uh, are more than helpful. So mm. you know, it's uh, so. Tell us when you're in your eight-week or twelve-week marathon. Tell us about your daily writing routine. Do you have a system or a ritual, or a you got to start your way in a certain day, or how does it work for you? Uh, how it usually works is I would usually um, I'd usually wake up at about quarter to seven. Um, I might go for a walk, or I might not. Um, just make some, uh, have a shower and make some quick breakfast, and really, aim, you know, do do emailing and make all the administrative calls, mm. and try to be try to be hitting the first keystroke at nine on the dot. So I I'm I'm not a sort of uh, a haphazard writer. Mm. I like to make it my work. I like to um, I like to to, to Cut it down into shifts mm. for me, which usually my shift usually goes nine till twelve, mm. and then uh, one till four, mm-hmm. and then I will do I will write anywhere between say two hours and four hours uh, after a meal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I can sometimes I might write through to midnight. Wow. And other times I'll write through to 10. So I'll usually do, you know, three shifts in a day. Mm. And each each of them lasts around three hours. That's full on. 
Well, yeah, and it works differently to a lot of people. Mm. Um, you know, I've uh, I've found myself having to, you know, being asked for advice on these things. You know, when people want to write and what have you, and and I just usually say that, usually tell them that, you know, uh, you know, the, the, the sitting around waiting for inspiration style, mm. it doesn't work for me. No, and as a journalist, uh, I think that. You've never really had that luxury. You say you're not well, used to it. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. I mean, if you've, if your background to writing novels mm. is twenty years of journalism, mm. if that's where you start from, then you already see yourself as a professional. Mm. You already see what you do as, in the same way that a that a lawyer or a doctor or. a psychologist or whatever, mm. would see themselves, and that is somebody who has a skill mm. to, to sell, and you've got to get organized, and you have to, you know, uh, you have to decide whether you're doing it for real or mm. whether this is just part-time. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people who write novels, they hold down a full-time job, uh, you know, what, in, in our world, we call it the day job, mm. they'll hold down a day job. And then, then they come home and they um, they have something to eat, and then they write for two or three hours. Mm. Uh, and that's what, and that's when it does take a year or two to mm. get a manuscript out. Mm. Anyone who can do it that way, best of luck to them. Mm. I think that's I think that's an, an incredible effort to keep commitment. your focus. Yeah, commitment mm. and focus to keep to keep it going that long. But I see myself more as a professional, and mm. so. I uh, I divide it down. Uh, I've and you know I have I have the added confidence of knowing I can write a novel in eight weeks, mm. which um, not everyone has that mm. feels that they can do it. And I wouldn't recommend it for everybody either. <laughs> by the way, it um, you know you you can you can really spin yourself out. You can mm. get uh, you know what I would say mentally exhausted rather than physically exhausted and. Mm. Um, it's not the best way. That's why I take longer these days. But if it comes down to it, I know I can do it. So, uh, so yeah, I have a routine, usually three shifts a day. And when I'm writing, I don't listen to music mm. and I don't take phone calls and I don't, I don't have my, I don't have my sort of, you know, iChat or, mm. or Twitter going in the background and, you know, everything is just mm. focused on that one page, I don't even check the internet unless wow. I'm doing unless I'm doing basic research for the thing. So, yeah, so that's how I do it. And on that, I heard now is this true <laughs> that you don't have a TV? I don't have a TV. Well, I, I haven't had a TV until about ten weeks ago. Oh, and then you got one. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's it doesn't have cable on it or anything. And right, um, I was so long without a TV that I don't I don't really watch it unless. You know, the only thing I've ever watched on TV is either um, is really is is news or movies. Right. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I'll watch um, I'll watch um, the news at six thirty or whatever, seven mm. o'clock, and if there's a movie on, I'll watch it. Like City Slickers was on the other night. That's an old movie. <laughs> well, it was on TV, so I just okay, okay, I'll watch this. So you know, um, but yeah, I. Uh, yeah, until till about ten weeks ago, I didn't have one. So, so what's yeah. next for you? Are you already working on your next project? Yeah, well, what happens for for me is that um, I have I have created another hero. Oh, uh, well, I mean, yeah, let, let's take one step back. I uh, once it turned out that Golden Serpent was a popular. Mm and the publishers liked it and the readers liked it. Alan and Unwin essentially gave me a six-book deal, mm-hmm. so of which Golden Serpent was the first. So I have, have I, and I've just recently, Counter-Attack was number four, mm-hmm. and for number five, I decided to create a new character uh, who would not be a spy but a, but a former soldier, mm-hmm. and he would, wouldn't be Australian, he'd be American. Mm. So yeah, no. This this doesn't mean that Alan McQueen is over. Okay, <laughs> it just this <clears throat> this will be in parallel, right? Um, and so that book is coming out, I think, July or August. 
<clears throat> but it will be coming out under another name of Mark Aitken. Right. So, uh, and so that all... people don't get confused or? Well, yeah. I mean, if you've got, um, if people get used, you know, if, if, if my first four novels were, you know, Alan McQueen. Right, they'll buy it and if they don't get Alan, they'll. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So from a, uh, from a retailing and marketing perspective, mm. that, 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 that's how it's going to go. So, so I've just finished a book called Arctic Floor mm-hmm. and uh, it's got a different hero. Mm. A similar writing style. It's uh, you know um, high octane, probably even more action than the Alan McQueen book. And how um, is his the, the protagonist going to be very different to Alan? And and is he going to have a different sort of part of the world that he specialises in? Or ha- yes. what are the differences? Well, uh, you see, the uh, whenever I've lived in North America. It's been in the sort of uh, rural redneck belts. Right. Uh, you know, uh, 20 years ago, I spent some time in Colorado, and just recently, uh, I've been spending a lot of time in Ontario, in Canada. Mm. So, my, uh, so I've created a character who comes from those sorts of areas, mm. uh, who's a retired soldier, but as you know, a lot of these special forces people... They come back to normal life. They can't really earn much of a living, mm. but there's a lot of um, private contract work. Mm. You know what used to be called mercenary, mm. but um, and so they go back. So I've just got a character who gets who, who who thinks he's retiring back to his dad's farm, but gets lured out for you know to head head up teams doing certain things, mm. and they always uh, end up being way way more complicated. Mm-hmm. Than he thought, mm. so it's um, it's a similar character except you know, American and younger than Alan McQueen, and mm. uh, but you know it's similar thrills and spills sort of approach to writing. I would say at the pace you write, you could be you know um, writing multiple books per year under multiple names. <laughs> Yes, I could, and that's why I'm a ghostwriter. So yeah. I write. So that is the that is the plan. That is what you do. That's what I do. Mm. Um, I, you know, I probably every year I have a ghostwriting assignment going on uh, uh, to ghostwrite a book. And Tell I've us about that, in because like when you're ghostwriting for under someone else's name or for someone else or with yeah. someone else. You really need to capture their story and almost their voice. So, how do you do that? As in, not obviously the information, but but their their feeling. You have to be a professional listener, mm. and I, you know, I have, you know, some of some of the manuscripts people have shown me in the past that they want me to have a look at and what have you, mm. or pieces of writing. Usually, you can tell that they they have something of a tin ear. You know, you. I think that if you if you're going to write anything, you have to train yourself to be a listener, mm. rather than constantly telling everybody you're a writer. Um, mm. You know, and you, yeah, you really do. You have to be, uh, and and that comes into its own if you're a journalist, and mm. it certainly is crucial if you're going to ghostwrite because as, as you've just so rightly said, it's not just about getting the information. But it's getting the voice and the feel out of it. So um, I thought I'd turn that off. Um, the voice and the feel out of it, so that it reads um, like as if the person has written it themselves. Mm. Um, and you know, there's only one way you can do that, and that is to to sit down in front of somebody and just really, really listen and really um, tune in to what they're talking about. In terms of your ghostwriting projects, do people come to you or do you go after them in terms of the things that you want to ghostwrite? How how does that work for you? They come after me. Mm-hmm. So whether it comes through um, my existing publishers or whether it comes through, you know, a publisher who heard about me through another publisher mm. uh, or whether it comes directly from the person who wants to do who wants to get a project done, but they can't really write it themselves. But, 
you know, sometimes what happens is a, a high-profile person will be approached by a publisher mm. and the publisher will say, well, you know, here is the, you know, here is the contract and here is the, the lump of money we're going to wave in front of you. Mm. Um, but can you do this themselves? And the person probably will say yes, but they know they can't. <laughs> and so they come looking for someone like me who will basically be introduced to the publishers and make mm. everyone feel comfortable mm. and, you know. Um, so presumably you don't say yes to all the ghostwriting projects you're approached with. What do you like ghostwriting? What sorts of things do you like ghostwriting? I like ghostwriting anything where I get to get an insight into and understand somebody else's world and someone else's profession. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I can't just I can't just go and rattle them off to you. But some of mm. the people who I've ghostwritten um, are very interesting, very powerful, very successful, very wealthy people. Mm. And getting to spend extended hours with these people and getting uh, an insight into how a whole other slice of life works and you know how people behave and you know how you know people the kind of people you read about in the newspapers. Mm. And you're suddenly being told a story about how they behave in privateness, you know, and your jaw, your jaw is dropping. Yes. You go, really? <laughs> it's, so I, I like that. I like um, anything where I get to learn. Do you sort of um, interview them first and get all of the information and then start crafting and structuring, or do you go, do it as you go along? Um. It it, uh, it depends on what the project is. Right. Um, the last one I did, uh, the commitment I made with the person I was ghostwriting for was, you know what, you know, we had a very short time frame. I'd, I'd been given basically, I think, about eight or nine weeks to turn it around. That's do mm. the interviews and write the manuscript. Mm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, that, yeah, once again, you under... And, and I think what I said to the person is, look, usually I'd do a chapter plan mm. for this, but in this case, because we're talking about a certain thing that I'm ghostwriting, mm. I'm going to go away and I'm going to do my basic research for a day or two, mm. just read everything I can find on the internet about it. Mm. And then on this day, we'll sit down and we'll do a two-hour interview and we'll do that, that twice a week for seven weeks. Right. And I'll write it as I go. And so that's what we did. And in the end, the publishers decided they didn't want me as the ghost, that they were going to put my name on the book. So that was called The Fast Life and Sudden Death of Michael McGurk. Right, yes. Which I wrote with uh, Richie Verica. Mm. And uh, and that's how that started. We we Mm. had a, a a short time frame to turn it around, so we just committed to two meetings a week and I was writing and, you know, showing them pages and what have you. But other but other ones, uh, yeah, I'll get the information first. I'll do a chapter plan. We'll plan it out and I'll basically work to filling up that chapter plan and it, it works in a slightly different way. And when you are ghostwriting somebody's life or their experience in a particular part of their life, um, have you done that for women or or mainly men or both? I've done I've done one I've done one uh, project for a woman mm-hmm. and the publisher pulled the plug on it when when we were only about a month into the project right and that's because the woman in question uh, moved on from the job she was at right um which sort of removed her credential for writing yeah. the book in the first place, if you get what I mean. Yeah. So, so but yeah. in that month, did you find it different? Because, you know, it is well, a different yeah. energy. It's a different voice kind of thing. Yeah, well, I think that's the, the, I think that's the trick of just making yourself be a good listener. Mm. Because if you make yourself be a good listener, then it doesn't matter what gender somebody is or mm, mm. What, what culture they're from or... How rich they are! You you write the you write the story out of their own heart, out of their own voice. Mm. You just you sort of disembody yourself from the process almost. You just mm. you become a um, a channel. But I mean, you know, the, 
I don't have I don't have a lot of sort of culture shock with females because mm. you know, I grew up in a house of three sisters and <laughs> I've got a twin sister and you know uh, so you know. Uh, women aren't that much sort of alien to me anyway, really. (laughs) (laughs) Now, back to Counter-Attack and Alan McQueen. Now, a lot of that inspiration, as you said, started from when you were nine years old reading Dr. No. And these days, you're actually being compared to the likes of Ian Fleming and Tom Clancy. How does that feel? Well, that was pretty amazing. Uh, (laughs) Graham, Graham Blundell, who who is the crime and thriller um, writer or editor for the Weekend Australian. He, he wrote that. Mm. And uh, when I first saw it, I couldn't believe it. I thought, oh, wow. You know, he's kind of, um, he's uh, un- unknowingly uh, hit on some, on some real soft spots for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, so to be, to, be, to be said that I sort of write like, a, like an Aussie Ian Fleming was very... Um, and as it happened, that the publishers uh, want, uh, pulled that quote out uh, for use on subsequent books as well. Uh, so it's um, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I suppose everybody has can think of an author who turned them into a reader. Really, um, you know, who, who took who took reading from being a chore that their mother made them do to something that they really wanted to do. So, and for me, that was. Uh, that would have been Ian Fleming and Jules Verne, um, but you know, in particular, Ian Fleming because of the genre he was writing in. Mm. And finally, what would your advice be to people who are listening to this and they've got that rollicking book in them, or they've got that that you know deep desire to be an author? What would your advice be to them? Okay, advice. Mm. Um, I think I've probably let a few, let a few of them slip as we've been going. Yes. Um, I think the, the the first thing I would I would say is that you uh, is that you have to make make a commitment to what you're doing. You have to decide that this is it, and that um, and that, that this is the mission, and you're going to do it. So you have to make a personal commitment inside yourself. Secondly, in terms of actually getting the project done. I would always advocate that you that you divide the you subdivide the project down into smaller parts that are completed. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to get a, you have to train yourself to know that you're going to finish it. So even if you do what I do, uh, and when I get going, I measure my progress by chapters, mm-hmm. and I don't start a chapter unless I'm going to finish it. Uh, and that's just a personal discipline for me. So if I start my first keystroke at nine o'clock in the morning, uh, I, I told you that that you know I told you that that last shift of the day could be one or two hours, or it could be four hours, mm. and that really depends. You know, how, am I going to finish this chapter? Right. So th- that would be my advice to people: is is to train yourself to complete something. And chapters are a really good thing to complete. Most people can do one. Uh, even if you even if you're writing the book after work, set yourself the goal of e- I ch- finish a chapter each week, mm. and actually finish it. Don't leave it dangling. Don't say I'll come back to it because you know. Don't think. Don't have that kind of bureaucratic idea that someone else will do it. Mm-hmm. Because when you're a writer, only one person can do it, mm. and that's you. I would also. I would also advise to only ever write what you would want to read yourself. Mm. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of manuscripts by first time as they get um, they get sort of mired they get mired in, in in a sense of how important they might be. If you get what I mean, <laughs> um, you know it's true. It's a lot mm. of first timers do it. They think, well, I'm a writer now, so I have to be sort of really learned and yes. and clever about everything, whereas that's not always that interesting to someone who's reading it. Mm. That's an ego trip for the writer. So you've you just got to switch yourself around a bit, and sometimes if a, if a paragraph's not working, just look at it with fresh eyes and say, would I actually want to read this? Would I find this entertaining? Mm. And if the answer's no, then go back and do it again. And, uh, you know, and on that last point... Mm. The ultimate piece of advice that I was ever given was that, um, you know, 
amateurs write, but professionals rewrite. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's the biggest. That's the biggest thing of all. The you know when you see those beautifully crafted um, chapters by someone like an Ian McEwan or you know mm. one of these or, or an Annie Prue. Mm. When you see that beautiful, you know, just just understand that from, from the professionals' side of it, that those are those are um, those are chapters that have been gone over and over mm. again. They've been rewritten, which is what the good pros do. And uh, so, if you if you are a first timer and you want to get into it, um, yeah, make a, make a commitment to complete the project, but make sure that uh, you. That completion means you've you've rewritten the thing over and over till you think it's really good. Mm. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Mark. Okay, thanks, Valerie. There you go, Mark Abernathy. Now, I really related to something that Mark said in that he really kind of embraces the editing process. As a journalist myself and as, as, as an editor myself, I really value the process of editing and I have no problems at all when an editor comes back to me as a journalist with some of my writing saying, can you include more of this here or can we flesh out this, this, uh, flesh out this section a little bit more or can we cut this section into about half? Because I know that it's going to make for a much tighter story. And I've worked with many writers who, you know, take it as a personal offence when there is just simply even a comma inserted. And I just encourage you to not be so precious about your work because an editor is there specifically to help your writing shine, to help your writing better, to to become better. They're not there to criticise your work and to show you all of your weaknesses. They actually want you to be shown in the, well, your writing to be shown in the best light. So wherever you have a good editor on your side, embrace it. I encourage you to actually think of this as a gift and a wonderful, wonderful learning experience that you can, um, that is only going to make your writing better. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's chat with Mark. The Murder and Mayhem podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, one of the world's leading centres for writing courses, with online and classroom writing courses in all genres of writing, including crime writing. Students enrol from all over the world. You'll find a course to suit your needs right here at writerscentre.com.au.